if you're knocking about Wigton, a spear tree kind of way, you're not too far off a spot that housed members of the Women's Land Army during World War II. If you're somehow not hooked by that, well, hold on to your skirt. Because I'm talking about Gill House in Bromfield, and these digs were haunted, yo. In fact, the fact that it was haunted is apparently indisputable, according to friend of the show, Laurie Kemp. Even before the war, for 700 years before the war, it was haunted. But it was in 1943, during the first three nights of a waning moon, obviously, that the most modern reports emerged for the haunting of Gill House. Thunder, thunder, yeah. In those 700 years before World War II, Gill House was owned by the Ray family. One of those Rays, Gerald, was a Satanist, wasn't he just? And his grandson, Jackson, murdered his wife and got off on the insanity plea. Uh, with that chequered history in tow, the women of the Industrious Land Army shouldn't have been surprised that their hostel didn't provide them with much downtime. It was first reported in the Daily Dispatch nationwide that one of the women had claimed to have been awoken as she felt she was being strangled and pulled through her bed. Just think about that for a moment. Strangled through your bed. That is some Freddy Krueger shit there. One person who had knowledge of some previous spooky goings on was Helen Parkin, a Land Army Administration officer who volunteered to investigate after the coppers declined to do so. She knew what she was about as well, because when she was needed, she was ready to rock up with a priest and his wife in tow. And the call did come. It was late on July 17th when Parkin was urged up to Gill House amidst protests from the Land Army women who weren't willing to spend one more night in distress. It was 11.45pm when Parkin, the Reverend Norman Murray and Mrs Murray arrived at the location. With the knowledge that the hauntings were routinely between midnight and 3am, they were just in time for the main event and so gathered their courage and entered the barracks alone at 11.55. They sat for a few moments, the vicar and his wife at the window, parking at the foot of a bunk, before the disturbances began. There was a light tapping coming from inside a cupboard, and Reverend Murray instructed Parkin to knock back. As she did, she was swiftly sent reeling by a great rasping sound. She sat back in a place at the foot of a bunk, and not a moment later, great bounding footsteps came bursting from the cupboard, and whatever it was, it settled right next to Parkin. All three present spoke of a noise. Helen likened it to the winding of a fishing reel and the Reverend to the winding of a large clock. Parkin then claimed to have had all the warmth removed from her, turning icy cold before the presence that had been nicknamed Christopher by the Land Army women began tapping the wall along the fireplace. 
It tapped up and down the wall, with the Reverend even following it, listening closely as it sounded like the tapping was metallic, like the presence was tapping with a penny. As they listened, a stench filled the room, an odour they could all agree was wildly unpleasant, though they couldn't identify it there and then. Once the tapping had ceased at 3am, Reverend Murray was able to place the scent, one he had smelled before in his line of work. When he was curating a funeral, and the coffin leaked. So for the next step, a Ouija board, innit? Reverend and Mrs. Murray returned with Parkin to question any spirits who might have been hanging about at that point in time. The Rev was apparently tremendously psychic and could hold his hand about a foot over the board and make it move. Surely this was going to produce results. And so it did. The three investigators spoke to a spirit called Kettle from Kilkenny. No doubt a ghost renowned for a high-pitched squeal when they were done boiling. Kettle confirmed that Gill House was indeed a hostel for the Women's Land Army and that it was haunted, stating that it was haunted by one Gerald Ray. You might remember him as the Satanist from earlier. Kettle said that Gerald Ray haunted Gill House because he stole the host to practice sorcery, meaning he stole the consecrated bread from the church to try and summon Satan. Uh, as you do. When asked if anybody else haunted the house, Kettle spoke of Lily, a servant who died from consumption in her mid-twenties and was buried in the garden. Kettle said nothing of the relationship between Ray and Lily, apart from the fact that Gerald called her My Lily. The final message from Kettle was to let the trio know that the odorous stench from the other night was in fact Lily's body. A local canon had become quite interested in the case and so traced the name Kettle for the gang, discovering a nun named Kettle living in a convent in Kilkenny in the 1200s. This canon was no ordinary canon though, he had many toys in his arsenal. His name was Pythian Adams and he was definitely the Velma of this gang, having worked with Harry Price on the haunting at Borley Rectory. A second session with the Ouija was booked for July 22nd, this time no Kettle, but a William Ogilvie, a Jacobite who had been killed in a duel. After some vague answers, the spirit started spelling out what the trio saw as gibberish, but Ogilvie was quick to retort that it was in fact Gaelic, and that he wasn't going to do all the work for them, so they'd have to get it translated. Enter Pythian Adams once more, who traced Ogilvie and had his message translated, which, in response to why the hauntings took place at the waning of the moon, read, On these holy nights, cursed be he who hurts the man. As Parkin sent her report through the official channels, HQ was forced into action and so sent a correspondent from London to corroborate the claims. This was Mrs. Howes and her assistant, Miss Mandale. They were prepped to spend a night in the haunted barracks, but they wouldn't last more than a few minutes. 
Miss Mandale experienced the presence burst from the cupboard and bound towards her, even claiming the thing touched her hair. As it moved over to Mrs. Howes, she had the pillow pulled from under her head and fled with her assistant, evidence apparently gathered. Gill House was abandoned by the end of the week, but Parkin et al. were left with the subsequent discoveries. One of the women staying at the house was to be married to a local, and so went round to Helen's house to discuss the possibility of a job in the same town as her betrothed. It turns out that her fiancé might have had ulterior motives for wanting his wife to be out of Gill House. He told a story of how, when he was a boy, he would cycle past Gill House at night and would see a man pulling a woman by the hair from the house to the nearby churchyard. This particular sighting was sourced once more, as told to our Reverend Murray, when he had moved to Eaglesfield. Upon being informed that his new vicarage was haunted, he was quick to speak of his experience with Gill House, only to discover that his church warden had lived in Bromfield as a girl, and had seen this man pulling a woman by the hair into the churchyard and up to the Ray family tomb. Later in 1943, Mary Hedden was walking with her family past Gill House when all of them gandered at the property only to see a young girl standing in an upstairs window. As they watched on at the abandoned house, a towering man shrouded in black placed one arm either side of the girl and pulled the shutters closed. Mary Hedden, as it happens, was the mother of Lena Askew, a member of the Women's Land Army who was staying at the house during the hauntings. So what went on? Was it Gerald galumphing about? Dragging Lily, perhaps, from Gill to the graveyard? Or was it his grandson, Jackson, declared insane for beating his wife to death for the rest of his life? He was said to flee at the sound of knocking, claiming the devil was out to get him. Who was the little girl? The shadowy figure, how did... Parkin and the Murrays get in touch with a 700-year-old nun from Kilkenny and a murdered Jacobite. Were there any more ghosts? I don't think we'll ever know. The year after the hauntings were investigated, a priest having dinner with Parkin said he had an uneasy feeling about Gill House and so exercised it. That seems to have done the trick, as no hauntings have been reported since that day in March 1944. No supernatural hauntings, anyways. Cheers for listening to the final episode of Season 2 of the Folklore of Cumbria cast. 
I'd like to thank my sources, the Historic website and Haunted Island websites, as well as the sites for British-listed buildings, the local Cumbrian archive, and of course, InSearchOfHolyWellsAndSprings.com. In more shocking news, the music was provided by SilvermanSound.com. I thought I'd finally give it a try. Details are in the description. And thank you, once again, for listening. Do ghosts ever truly go away? Are they put to rest? It seems as if Gerald Ray's actions in life were a punishment from up that way, and surely no exorcism could put him right. Maybe he took it as a chance to hide. Maybe with Lily exorcised, he had no reason to come out and so hid within the evil of men. Maybe Gill House isn't haunted so much anymore as it is cursed. Hope you enjoyed season two, though. Bye. And have a good one.